read verses 3 and 4 for us. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord. Whenever we read that, we, we know something's about to happen. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Last week, as I said, we started going through the book of Jonah. And what my hope is, as we go through this book, that this book will be an encouraging book that challenges us deeply. I mean, challenges us deeply to meditate on God's tender and gracious love towards sinners. And it would challenge all of our understanding of His grace and how He calls us to love our neighbors. You see, far too often when we come to this book and we read of it, we think of missions. And it is, helps us with missions, or we think of evangelism, and it does help us with evangelism. It, thinks, it helps us think through God's will. Or if you look in children's Bibles, what you'll see is the children's Bible we have at home says Jonah and the great fish. But I just want to propose something different for this book. And it's not that those things aren't themes in this book. It's that I think there's a major theme that stitches all of those things together. As I said last week, quoting G. Campbell Morgan. Men and women need to know that the book of Jonah is not about a great fish. The book of Jonah is about a great God. Oh, how I... I Wish we would, as we go through every book, that the church would just see that. Each book is about a great God. And specifically here, as the themes are talked about, missions, evangelism, God's will are talked about, the overarching theme is that God is a great God. Specifically how? is that he is gracious and tender in love towards sinners. That he is calling us to look at the world the same way he does. As I mentioned the week before, Jonah is a prophet of Israel who brought good news to the nation. Unlike Amos, who was a contemporary prophet, along with Jonah, who brought a prophecy of judgment because of Israel's idolatry and oppression, Jonah had the privilege of prophesying and bringing good news to the nation. Jonah had prophesied that the Lord would strengthen the walls or the border of Israel, and it happened. And not only did we see that, but we saw that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which is important because 
King Jeroboam II was an evil king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This gives us and helps fill in the context for the time. And at this point, we know about Jonah. What we know about Jonah is that he's a prophet gone rogue. He's gone AWOL from his mission. God had called Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and call out against it. This is God's will on Jonah's life. And he refuses. He runs. He flees. And now at first glance, if we remember what the city of Nineveh is like, we could think maybe Jonah had a good reasoning. By the way, I explained how gruesome and torturous the Ninevites were to Israel by the scrunched up look on your faces as I was explaining to it. And, and as some of you kind of just looked in disgust, thinking they could do that, we could think that maybe Jonah is fearful. One prophet going to a large city of course, why wouldn't he want to flee from that? No, you see, Jonah fled as we saw in chapter 4, verse 1. He fled because he hated Nineveh. Why does Jonah hate Nineveh? There are a few reasons. Jonah hates Nineveh because of their ethnicity. They aren't Jews, so he didn't think or believe that they deserved to hear about the love of God. And they were his enemies. And why would a prophet of Israel go to a Gentile city and proclaim and call out against it? And so... We see that Jonah hates Nineveh, and Jonah goes as far as to disobey God's will. But you see, Jonah's disobedience to God's will does not go unnoticed, and that's what we're going to see this morning, and neither does ours. And so before I go on any further, maybe what you're thinking is, well, what is God's will then on my life, and how do I know if I'm disobeying it? If God is calling me or if I have an opportunity to work here or work here, how do I know that I'm not going to disobey the will of God? Well, the psalmist tells us that simply obeying the will of God looks like delighting in the law of God. When we delight in the law of God, then we delight in the will of God. What is the law of God? Well, we could look to the Ten Commandments. Or we could look to what Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. So if you ask me, is it more sinful or will I be out of God's will if I do this thing or that thing, I would simply say, is this thing or that thing going to cause you to deliberately sin against God's law? Is it going to cause you to sin against God? Simply put, we fulfill God's will in our lives when we submit ourselves to Him. 
But don't we often find ourselves in Jonah's shoes? Deliberately running from the presence of God? Deliberately sinning against our Creator? You see, the most gracious act that God could do is to send us a storm when that happens. The most gracious thing that God could do when we are in rebellion to Him, like the prophet Jonah, is to send a storm or a trial. Now let's see why. We come to verse 3, and it clearly, it makes, it's clear that Jonah is on the run. We, we see it right here. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. God says, Jonah, go here. But Jonah says, no, I'm going to rise and I'm going to flee. God has given Jonah his call. And Jonah runs from it. However, if we look closer at this verse, what we see happening is that the author wants us to see something important. See, the, the language and the images continue to only progress. We see two times the author is making a point that Jonah tried to flee. He arose to flee away from the presence of the Lord. It says in the beginning of verse 3, and then at the end of verse 3, it says, away from the presence of the Lord. He went with the sailors. But it only gets more intense, and we'll continue to look at that. You see, Jonah was willing to do anything to escape the will of God. And by escaping the will of God, it means fleeing from the presence of God. And when we flee from the presence of God, that means we are fleeing to something else. Sin. Maybe you're asking yourselves or thinking, well, how do you know that, Max? Well, I know that because chapter 3 of Genesis shows me that when Adam and Eve sinned against God and they deliberately disobeyed his command, they had to be forced out from the presence of God. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. It's not just a story about an older brother murdering a younger brother, but when that happens and God curses and also protects Cain, Cain, it says, goes out from the presence of God. When we are fleeing from the presence of God, that means we are running to sin. And this is exactly what Jonah is doing here. In a literal sense, Jonah is running to Tarshish, a place that is as possible west from Nineveh as he could travel. However, in a spiritual sense, Jonah is running from loving God by refusing to submit to his commands. To go to Nineveh. This is a prophet of God. If there is anybody who would have known the theological language, if there is anyone who had a closer relationship This is a prophet who received the oracles of God and then spoke them to the people of Israel. 
And yet we see him run. Sometimes our theology doesn't match up with our hearts, does it? I mean, can you imagine this? The disciples are with Jesus for three years. And as Jesus is giving the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And the disciples get up and they flee. We don't want to go to the nations, Jesus. Imagine Paul, who was a self-proclaimed zealot, a self-proclaimed persecutor of the church, and Jesus comes and knocks him off his high horse and says, you Jewish zealot, I want you to go to the Gentiles and proclaim the gospel. So here's Jonah, the prophet, who is running, fleeing from the presence of God. But here's, here's the thing. In case we point our fingers at Jonah and wag our heads, aren't we guilty of this as well? Aren't we guilty of fleeing the presence of God, not taking his commands serious. God calls us to not have any other gods, and yet we spend more, in time, more time in communion on our phones than in communion with him. God calls us to love our neighbors and our enemies, but we tend to read that as only if our enemies and neighbors tend to look or agree with me on certain things. And so we must not point the finger at Jonah and wag our heads saying, tisk tisk. I can't believe you're doing that, Jonah. And as I said, the language only continues to grow as we look through verse 3. Because not only does this author say that he arose to flee from the presence of God, but the language of going down. The author doesn't need to say that. He could have easily have just said he went to Joppa. But the author is making a point that Jonah is going down and down and indulging in this idea of running from God's will. You see, sin does not bring us up. Sin will not bring you up. It only brings you down. It brings you down into the harsh, and I mean harsh, enslavement of addiction and dependence. And so here's the next image or thing that we must look at that's important because Jonah didn't have TripAdvisor or Expedia. 
He couldn't go on his phone and look to see when the next boat is going to go to Tarshish, or when the next boat was yeah, going to go to Tarshish. Jonah didn't or had the opportunity to, to go and say, I would like one ticket to Tarshish, and they say, all right, you're going to want to go to dock seven. When Jonah arrived to Joppa, it says there was a boat that was going to go to Tarshish. What is God's will? God's will for Jonah is to go to Nineveh, not Tarshish. And how easily could it have been for Jonah to look at this boat as God's divine providence for me? God wants me to flee to Tarshish. But how often are Satan's trapped looked at as God's providences when we are willing to do anything to flee from the presence of God? There's no doubt that Jonah could have justified this boat is here for me to take because God wants me to take it. But once again, this is the same thing we do as we try to justify why sin is better. Why sin is more satisfying. Why fleeing from the presence of God won't be as serious but better for us. You see, God, if God didn't want me to leave my spouse, then he wouldn't have brought this other person into my life. If God didn't want me Sorry, I was going to say that one again. If God has blessed me financially, what does it hurt that I go on all of these vacations or buy all of these toys? God has created a way to watch church over social media. So what does it matter if I miss the Sabbath a few weeks in a row? God has created me to be a pretty independent person, so what does it matter that I don't fellowship with the body of Christ? What we don't see or realize when we are trying to justify ourselves is that as we walk further and further away from the presence of God, like Jonah, we are willing to do anything, even pay. Jonah would have had to pay a hefty sum to go on this boat to Tarshish. And how does the author then leave it? Saying that Jonah went down even further into the boat. Which isn't that then what sin aims to do to our hearts? Condemn us? Go down even further. Live in secret. This is what we see the prodigal son doing. So he takes his father's money, his inheritance, he flees to a foreign country so that way nobody would know who he is and he could get away with anything he wanted to. And yet, indulging in his sinful momentary pleasures, that only leads him to a pigsty. And the same is true when we flee from the presence of the Lord. And so I would just like to ask right now, do you find yourself like Jonah? 
running from God's will, seeking the pleasures of the world, thinking that they will somehow satisfy your soul. You see, God is gracious and loving to let you run. But God is also gracious and loving to then send the storm. We come to verse 3 and we see this. <laughs> we see, but the Lord. And when we see, but the Lord, as I said, something's about to happen when we see, but the Lord. In Ephesians, Paul goes on to say, but God, and then makes one of the most amazing statements, that God is rich in mercy and great in love. However, we see here something just a little bit different than what Paul is saying. The Lord, it says, the, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. As Jonah is down deep in the ship, sleeping, the Lord sends a mighty tempest. It was the Lord who hurled the great wind. It wasn't by chance. God is not going to let his prophet run. And this wind that the Lord hurled against him, it says that this tempest was so severe that it threatened to break the ship. So the Lord hurled something so great so severe, so scary towards Jonah that it threatened to break the very thing that would have saved his life, a ship. And far too often, we believe that we are to keep our sin hidden like Jonah. Nobody will know what I'm doing and I will be able to conceal it from everyone else. child of God if you are presuming right now that you are fooling everyone around you with your secret sin it may be so that you are but you are not fooling God he knows our hearts and he knows our ways and the most gracious thing at this point that God could do for you is to send a storm to get your attention. Now at this point, I do need to make it very crystal clear because one of the maybe arguments that could be going on in your head or you could be thinking of right now is, well, wait a second, Max, you're... This, this message kind of sounds a lot more like what one of Job's friends would have said. Now let me say this, not every storm that comes or trial that comes is the direct result of our sin. Because if that was the case, then you could make the argument to Job. But if you've read Job and you've read particularly the end of Job, you know that it doesn't go well with Job's friends as God tells Job, do some sacrifices for your friends because they've gotten this all wrong. You could even make the argument, well, then did Jesus have some type of secret sin in his life that the storm led to him dying on the cross? Or as Paul was saying, as we saw in Philippians, as he's being 
accused of having some type of secret sin. And that's why he's in prison. That's not what I'm, I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that sin has consequences. And living in unrepentant sin and running from the presence of God, there will be a storm for the child of God. And sometimes it's outwardly and other times it's internally. We see that Job's sin externally affects not just jo- or Jonah, but it affects those that are on the boat. It affects those that are even on the sea during that time. But in other cases, there are times when as we hide and conceal our sin, it tears and eats our consciences alive. But lest you think that this is just a dreary passage, there is good news and hope in this passage. As a, as a pastor has said about this particular verse, is that there is mercy deep in our storms. I would say that God is showing his tender and gracious love towards us in our storms. God shows us his graciousness as he is showing Jonah his graciousness as he is disciplining him. And he shows us his gracious love by disciplining us. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. God does not flippantly play with our souls. I think far too often we believe that the Lord flippantly plays with our souls. God plays for keeps. He will not let one of his sheep go. And so this is why he sends the great storm towards Jonah. And this is why, quite frankly, God could be sending a great storm your way. And that's why it could be the best possible thing for you to get your attention, to remind you of whose you are, who you belong to. (laughs) You belong to God if you're a child of his. We should not presume that Christ's sacrifice was just a weak and a puny thing. His sacrifice was final. He hangs on to you. This is what we call the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. He will not let you go, child of God, and so he will send a storm after you. And it will be the most gracious and loving thing that he can do to you. Why is that? Because as Paul tells us in Romans the worst thing that could happen to a human being is God giving them over to their their desires and their passions. For those whom he loves, he will not let your secret sin, your deliberate disobedience to run from him go unnoticed. Jesus has come to save sinners from their sins. And when he does that, he continues to do that. He won't let you go, and this is why he sends the storm. And this is the most gracious act that God could possibly do for us as his children. Because we still wage war with the flesh. 
Our sin tempts us to doubt. Our sin tempts us to flee. But praise God that he has more grace in him, as an old dead theologian says, in him than we have sin in us. And so he sends the storm to Jonah like he sends the storm to us. This is why God will not let your sin go unnoticed because he has redeemed you. His son's sacrifice was too great to let his children just continue on in unrepentant sin. Christ's sacrifice is too great to let us run from him. And so he sends the the storm. Have you been running from God's presence? Let's take an honest evaluation. Have you been running from God's presence? If so, today come back. Don't wait to get in your car. Don't wait till you get home. Right now, turn back to him. Look to the cross of Calvary that has saved you and trust that he will not cast you out. He will not look at you with his head down low thinking, what were they doing? He will embrace you and bring you back in. And if you've been running from his presence, I just want to suggest a few things, and I'm going to wrap up here. The first is pursue communion with God. Pursue communion with him. This looks like opening up your Bible and reading it or listening to it. once heard a, 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 a sermon where the pastor said, don't just give it a little touch, but swim in it. The scriptures are an ocean that God wants us to, to swim in. It reveals us to us who he is. The next is Pray. After that, don't neglect the Sunday gathering and the Lord's Supper. And don't run from fellowship. These are all things that Jonah is doing right now. All things he's not doing. And in case you are in the storm right now, don't look at it as God hates me. Don't look at it as this is some type of karma that God's trying to get back at me. This could be a sign of the most loving and gracious thing that he could be doing to you right now, sending the storm to cause you to see how great he is. This is the mercy that comes out in the storm, that as we are in the storm, it builds us, it shows us who God is. And so if you fled from him, are fleeing from him, or are in the storm, come back and see how worthy he is.
how great His grace is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You sent the storm to, to Jonah. I thank You for the storms that You've sent in my life. God, I just pray and ask that there, there may be some people that are trying to hide from you, trying to run from you, and, and I just ask that, that you would show your graciousness and send the storm. Cause them to see how wonderful and magnificent you are. And if there are those who are in the storm right now, encourage them and show them that this storm in their life isn't because you hate them, but it's actually because you love them enough that you are still pursuing them, you still are going after them, you still love them. God, stir our affections. Give us a heart of love. In Jesus' name, amen.